We're continuing our series, begun just a few weeks ago in the book of James, the title of which you see on the screen behind me, Real Faith. And I'll explain why we call, why we call this series in the five chapters of James by that title in just a bit. We had last week off because of Father's Day, and now we resume. And we're going to pick up in verse 9 in just a bit of chapter 1. I remember a TV ad from years ago that said, <clears throat> you need to subscribe to this particular magazine. And the reason is because they said, quote, what you don't know can hurt you. Now that formula that we have information, you don't, and so what are you going to do about it, is a tried and true method of motivating people. Because if you think you don't have information that you need, it indeed motivates you. In fact, it'll do one of at least two things. It might embarrass you. I should have this information, but I don't. And this is what repair people of various types specialize in. They often begin the interrogation with, when was the last time you changed your oil filter? or changed your furnace filter, or whatever it is. And so you go to an oil change place and they ask, when was the last time you flushed your radiator? Or when was the last time you changed your transmission fluid? And when he shows you your air filter, he has this look that like this is the filthiest thing I have seen in 25 years of doing this. And you're supposed to be embarrassed then into buying a new one. You have no idea what it's supposed to look like, and you think what you don't know can hurt you, and so you buy one. Now, I'm sort of onto this, so I don't easily embarrass over any of it. I can remember when we were just a few years into the house we now live in that our water heater broke down. We called a repair guy. So I follow him in the basement, and he looks at the water heater, and he says, first of all, this is not up to code. And then there's just this pause because I'm supposed to care about that. <laughs> He's waiting for my reaction, but I didn't have one. So we just looked at each other for a few awkward minutes, and then he says with a chuckle, you don't mind if I bring it up to code, do you? Now what am I supposed to say to that? No, I prefer to be out of code. <laughs> and I just said, if it means I'll have hot water, I'm all for it. You see, if you don't think you have information you need, it can motivate you in a number of ways, one of which is just by embarrassing you, and so you take action. But another one is this. It can scare you. I googled the phrase, what you don't know can hurt you. Now, do me a favor, all of you people with iPads and smartphones, don't Google it right now, okay? And when I did that, I got hits on subjects like food safety, estate planning, the dangers of aspartame, symptoms of various diseases, and on and on it went. One article called Disability, What You Don't Know Can Hurt You, started like this. The average adult rushes off each weekday morning to work or school focused on the busy day ahead. No one ever thinks that one day suddenly his or her life will be changed forever by a sudden, unexpected disability. Well, now we're scared. And now you need to sign up or buy something. 
And unfortunately, Christian ministries sometimes specialize in this sort of scaremongering. You have cable shows that are devoted to God's news behind the news. And they purport to connect current events with what the Bible says about the future. And they make predictions of the second coming of Jesus based upon obscure calculations. And they give you information about supposed demonic activity or the latest government conspiracy to stamp out Christianity. There are people like this, information gurus, stuff you really need to know. You should be scared that you don't, therefore act now. They're all over the place. I drop my girls off at school often. And after I do, I sometimes go for a coffee at a place that has Wi-Fi, and you run into the same people there. And there's an old fellow who meets with other old fellows that sits pretty close to where I normally do. And I had overheard his conversation with his friends a number of times, and he's kind of the, the main guy, the go-to guy. They all kind of gather around him as he holds court. And he dispenses this information to his, his friends. And a lot of times it's very conspiratorial. And after I had seen him a few times, he saw me with a Bible and he said, are you a pastor? And I said, I said, yeah. And he said, I love to talk about the Bible. So he's got knowledge about everything, including, including the Bible. And then he started to spin a conspiracy theory. And he said, quote, I have vital information that people need to know. And I know that I was supposed to fall down on my knees at that point and thank God that I ran into this guy at the coffee shop who has vital information that everybody needs to know. And I said to him, you know that I'm a pastor. Should I be teaching this to my congregation? And he says, well, that depends on your congregation. I said, well, wait a minute. You said it's vital information that everybody needs to know. Why does it depend on my congregation? The truth is, now hear this, friends. What you need to know and what I need to know, God has given us in the Bible. And you need not be scared. And you need not be embarrassed by what you don't know if you know what God has said to us in Holy Scripture. If you think you don't have information you need, it will motivate you. But if you understand that God has given us the information we do need in Scripture, then it should motivate you to, one, thank Him, believe what He has said, and then put it into practice in daily life. And that's what James' burden is for us. James tells us in verse number 3 of chapter 1 that you know some things. And that you know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith works patience and eventually brings about maturity. Now, why is it that we, most of us, want to know all of these things, everything that we hear on TV, everything that we can read, and we have this kind of low-level paranoia that we're not going to know something that's vital for our well-being? Well, I think it's this. We want to know so that we can control. I need to know so that now I have the information I need so that nothing can possibly go wrong. Do you see what a fool's errand that is? 
The fact is, friends, we are not in control. And we never will be, no matter how much we know. Just consider. What all could go wrong this week for you? How many things could possibly go wrong for you? You can't count them. They are absolutely, literally limitless in the possibilities, are they not? And yet, we have this idea that I need to amass all of this information so that I can control all that could possibly happen to me. You can cross every T and dot every I of your life. And I don't mean to be morbid, but the truth is we could drop dead tomorrow. There's so much that can and does go wrong. I cannot possibly know all that could occur. But God has told me what I need to know when it does occur. God has told me how I need to face it when it does happen, not if it happens. And that's why we saw in verse 2 of James chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. Whenever, when, not if. And so I can't know because... They are various. They are varied. They are so diversified that it's impossible for me to prepare for every eventuality in the particulars. But what I can do is know the outcome. Now hear this. I can't know what's going to happen. I can know the outcome of whatever happens. And nothing that can go wrong can change what's most important. Nothing that can possibly go wrong in my life or in your life if you're attached to Jesus Christ can change what's most important. And therefore, the most important thing for you and for me is to be united with Jesus. So that whatever happens, come what may, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, it will not change what is most important. And that is true of every last one of us. The theologian Karl Barth was asked one time, of all of your great learning and scholarship, what's the most important thing that you have learned? And this is what this great, brilliant academic said. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells us what we need to know to face every issue that a good and sovereign God has ordained for us. And that's what James is telling us. You know that you are going to face trials. They're of a myriad varieties. And here's what God designs to come out of those trials. We'll rehearse that, and then we'll look at verses 9 through 12 together. Let's pray and ask for God's aid. Our Father, we thank you for your word because it is your word, because it's the word of the true and living God, it is alive and it is powerful. And in its pages, you have contemplated all that I need, all that we need, such that your word can claim for itself that you have given it to us to equip us for every good work. O oh Lord, 
Help us to cherish the Bible and your message to us about life in a fallen world and how we are to face the difficulties that inevitably come our way. Help us to see life, therefore, from a God-centered perspective, from a Christ-centered vantage point. And may we thereby be prepared for what comes our way today and this week and next week and beyond. In order to bring you glory, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Now we've seen in our first two weeks, looking at the first eight verses of the book of James, that we must respond to trials, circumstances that our sovereign God allows into our lives. We must respond to those because those trials, according to verses 2 and 3, or excuse me, 2 through 8, are, excuse me, verse 2, are unavoidable. You'll remember if you were with us a few weeks ago, unexpected and they're also unlimited in their variety. We must respond to them because they're going to happen. They're unavoidable. We don't know when they're going to happen. They're unexpected. And they are of unlimited variety. We must respond, but then we also saw that we can respond. And we can respond, according to verse 2, with joy in the midst of even difficult circumstances. Joy being a, a sense of delight, an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life, despite difficulty. I can respond with joy, and I can respond, according to verses 3 and 4, with perseverance, bearing up under the difficulty because I know that God is achieving something good in my life. And I can respond, according to verses 5 through 8, with wisdom. And now beginning in verse 9, this is what James tells us. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. Now as you read verses 1 through 8, and you see what I've just outlined regarding trials, you may rightly ask the question, what do these couple of verses have to do with what's just been said? Are they connected? Is it starting something completely, completely new? Well, they are indeed connected, and they are connected in a very important way. And let me point out some of the ways that they're connected. Back in verse 2, James writes to us, and he says, Consider it pure joy. And now he says, down in verse 9, Take pride. And in verse 10, again, take pride. The idea here in taking pride is to, is to boast, to exult, to rejoice in the fact that in verse 9, you're in humble circumstances, but yet have a high position. Or you are in well-off circumstances, and yet you have a low position position. We'll explain what that is in a moment. But the connection is James is saying you can have joy whatever the circumstance and now he's using the terminology exult, take pride, rejoice. It's further connected because verse 12 tells us of what verse 3 talks about. Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under, tri under trial because when he has stood the test. Do you see that? And do you remember in verse 3 it says, the testing of your faith. 
And so this is, verse 12, the conclusion now of this opening section of the book of James. And in the midst of that, we have these examples of particular circumstances. Those that are in low position, those that are in high position from the world's perspective. And James is providing this for us as an example of the kinds of trials, the kinds of circumstances that God brings our way in order to test our faith. Now we have an outline for you inserted in your program. I encourage you to take a look at it, look at that if you haven't already. And I remind you that James has told us that what is being tested is our faith. And remember that the same Greek word in your New Testament that's translated faith is also translated belief. And so you could translate verse 3, you know that the testing of what you believe. So what's being tested here to be proven and strengthened is what we believe, our faith. And I say in your outline, first of all, that faith looks beyond the situation. Faith looks beyond the situation. Faith looks beyond the situation. The poor and the rich, despite their vastly different circumstances from a worldly perspective, can look, each of them, beyond the situation, beyond what they see to what is unseen but is just as real, namely their position in Christ. The poor should look past what he sees to his position in Christ. The rich, likewise, has been made low in that his wealth means nothing in God's economy. <laughs> it's his position in Christ. And so faith looks beyond the situation if we believe what the Bible tells us about our position in Christ. Verse 9 tells us, and I say in your outline, that it looks beyond bad circumstances. It looks beyond bad circumstances. Verse 9 you have the brother who is in humble circumstances. And when it says humble circumstances, it's referring to someone who is in, in difficult economic stress. The word that's translated humble is used throughout Scripture and used in a number of contexts. Sometimes it refers to those who are oppressed very often, those who are oppressed are in a disadvantaged position in society. And so this is a brother who is economically distressed as compared to the rich brother because disadvantaged in some way in society. And so you find it in Psalm 10. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word for humble in James chapter 1. The fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. And so this brother is in difficult socioeconomic circumstances. That's his position. But James says he can take pride despite that. And what does he mean when he says take pride? Well, I've said exalt rejoice in the fact that something better is true of him than 
the apparent circumstances of life. You find that boasting in Scripture is not always bad. Taking pride or boasting or exulting. The issue is in whom or for what am I taking pride or boasting? We find this in Jeremiah chapter 9. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man of his strength or the rich man of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. And so you have this poor brother but he's a poor brother in Christ. And therefore, he can exult. Therefore, he can boast. Therefore, he can take pride. Why? Because in reality, despite the world's perspective on where he is, verse 9 says, he has a high position. And what is this high position? The Bible tells us that he, like all Christians no matter where they come from, no matter their background, no matter their circumstances, that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. I'm related to Jesus Christ, and therefore what He has, hear this, what He has I am an heir of. What He has has been promised to me. This brother in low position, in humble circumstances, can exult, can rejoice because he has this high position in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, let him rejoice in that he is exalted, says the King James. And it's in Christ that he's exalted. One commentator says he may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he drinks of the water of life. He may be poor, but he has true riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he's received by God. And so he can accept his deprivations, his human humiliation, his lowliness, and he can rejoice. He doesn't need anything more. His position before God is enough in Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, dear friend. Is your position before God in Jesus enough? Do you find yourself rejoicing in your circumstances? Even your bad circumstances, your difficult circumstances. God is testing in every circumstance what it is we believe and whether we believe genuinely what he has told us about himself and about ourselves. Faith looks beyond the situation. It looks beyond bad circumstances. But I say in your outline as well, it looks beyond good circumstances. Verses 10 and 11, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. And then goes on in verse 11. Now you just read that. You say, take cheer. <laughs> You'll pass away like a wild flower. The one who is rich should exult, should, should boast, should rejoice. And he should do so in his, his low position. 
Now why? Because, verse 10 says, he's going to pass away like a wildflower. And verse 11 goes on to explain, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed in the same way. The rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. And you find this throughout Scripture, the transitoriness of life, the brevity of life. We find it in Isaiah chapter 40. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. The psalmist says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it's gone, and its place remembers it no more. Then the psalmist says again, just very directly, and relates it to riches. The psalmist says this in Psalm 49, Do not be overawed. When a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies, his splendor will not descend with him. Now when it says he can't take it with him when he descends, it doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to hell because he's rich. But rather in the Old Testament, it was descending into the realm of, of the dead. When he dies and when he is, when he is buried... He can't, take it, he can't take it with him. And so do not be overawed when a man grows rich and the splendor of his house increases. And so here the rich Christian is told in James chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 is told that he too can take pride, he can boast, he can rejoice because he recognizes something beyond what we can see. Rather, that he has been allowed to suffer with the one who suffered for us. That he has been united with the suffering one. And he should take pride, he should exult, that he has been considered worthy of the name, as the apostles said when they were persecuted. Take pride, rejoice in his low position, because he knows that this identification with Jesus Christ is much more important than his houses, than his riches, than anything else. All of that will pass away. But what we have in Christ can never change. Now friends, I'd like to spend some time applying this before we move on in our outline. Whatever your circumstances whether you're well off financially, whether you struggle financially, how can you put to the test whether or not you believe that God is doing something good in all of your circumstances? And that you really believe, if you're poor, that God in this bad, difficult circumstance is still working good? Or if you're well off in these, from a human perspective, good circumstances, that these are transitory, that they are temporary. How can you know that you really believe that? Well, it's how you act in the midst of that. Do you poor mouth? 
Have you ever known people who poor mouth? They talk a lot about what they don't have and what they can't do. But the person who rejoices, exults in the fact that God is at work even in difficult circumstances, including difficult economic circumstances, will not find his or herself doing that. If you're well off, do you find yourself willing to give it away because it's temporary? Because it really doesn't matter to you. What really matters to you is your identification with Jesus Christ and your position in Him. Can you, well-off brother or sister, give it away? Let me ask you. Have you ever thought, all of us, have you ever thought about what it would be like to live someplace else? To live in, say, a third world country? You say, no, why should I think about that? Well, there are people who need Jesus there. That's one. And Jesus says to go into all the world. And he wants his people to think about being in other places and putting themselves in other circumstances. Have you ever thought, thought about what it would be like to be in a third world country? We would need some training for that, of course in order to harden us and steal us for it. If you're rich, or if you're well off, let me ask you, can you honestly say that these things really don't matter to you? Honestly say that? You may say it. You may claim that. But take a look at your checkbook. It'll tell you where your heart is. Jesus says where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. And look at how you spend your time and what it is that you try to, that you, that you exert your energies on. Do you spend your time and energy on what the money can buy? If so, friend, you're not exalting, taking pride in the low position that Jesus has graced upon you. But rather, you've bought into the world's perspective that says, this is what's most important. Amass as much as you can. Work for as much of it as you can. Now this is why verses 10 and 11 say that the rich, the well-off, can take pride because of his low position and because like a flower he's going to pass away and it's going to be temporary. Here's why. Because those who are attached to the wealth of this world are also attached, now hear this, to the uncertainty of those riches. And it goes up and down, doesn't it? And he should rejoice that he has been taught a reality beyond what the world sees. And he sees something larger with the eyes of faith. He believes that there is something more important than what he can amass. And therefore he's not part of something that depends on the ups and the downs of the market. Or consumer confidence. Or Athens and Madrid, and Greece and Spain, and whether or not they're going to survive. Or whether Ben Bernanke gets a cold and the market plummets. You say, but wait a minute, I've been smart enough in my investments to diversify. Oh, good for you. But you know, friend, 
in all of your pride for your portfolio and your diversifying. It's all connected. And it can all fall tomorrow. Every last bit of it. You can't amass enough and you can't do enough to protect yourself against the vicissitudes of the market. I encourage you sometime to read the tiny book of Habakkuk where there is described a total economic collapse. Now, I'm not trying to just be scary. I'm just trying to be real. Friends, there is nothing in this life, least of all riches and wealth, that is permanent. The only thing that is permanent, and therefore this is why the wealthy, well-off believer ought to rejoice because he's not tied to the transitoriness of life and riches and wealth, but rather he is attached to something, nay, someone, that will never change. Sometimes we say that appearance is reality, but not from a faith perspective. What is apparent is not all that's real. And there's a reality beyond the circumstances that you and I find ourselves in. Now, one last application. Verses 9 through 11 deal with socioeconomic status, poor and and rich, humble circumstances, well off. But you could apply this same thing to other bad and good circumstances and how you look at them. Let's say you're married, but you desire to have children, a very good desire but you find yourself childless. On the bad side, but on the good side, there are those who have families that God has has blessed them with. So in your family situation, you may be childless, you you may have a family, but the same things apply here to that situation as apply to the poor and the rich. How do you view it, childless couple? Do you see the fact that you are highly exalted in Jesus Christ and that you have all that you need? Those of us that have been blessed with children, do we see that our children are not the end, but they are the means to the end for which we were made to bring glory to our God? Your family situation. What about your work situation? You could be in good circumstances because you have profitable work, gainful employment. You thank God for that. But you could also be in bad circumstances because you are disabled or partially disabled. How do you view that? Do you see it from God's perspective? Or what about your physical health? You may have bad circumstances in that you have chronic sickness that you have to deal with. Or perhaps you're the picture of health. In all of these, and you could list a myriad more, they all apply. I'm either in bad circumstances or good circumstances, but there's a reality beyond the circumstances. And faith looks beyond the situation. Secondly, in your outline, faith looks forward to the consummation. It's a fancy word, consummation. The consummation of history. When we will be with the Lord and all is said and done. If you take a look at verse 12, 
Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Here's why. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So faith, those that believe that there's a reality beyond what we can see because God has told us and God has promised it and we believe that and then we act accordingly in our circumstances, that belief, that faith looks forward now to the consummation. Having persevered, we will be blessed, the verse says. It's the same word that's used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed is the man who, who perseveres. He will be, sometimes could be translated, happy, joyful, because he perseveres under, under trial. And when he has stood the test of what he believes, verse number 3, it's the testing of your faith and what you believe, when that has happened, at the end of his life, he will receive the crown of life. Now, it's not eternal life. It's not that we earn our salvation. But rather, it is the end product of the one who has gone through life, controlled by a sovereign God, and benefited from what our God has designed in all of those circumstances. And as a result will experience what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I have it on the screen. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. And here it's referring to the wreath that would be placed upon the head of the one who finishes the race. Blessed is the one who finishes the race who perseveres under the difficulties and the ups and downs of, of life in a fallen world because he will receive the crown of life. And it's the crown of life, notice the last phrase, the crown of life that God has promised to him. Faith looks beyond the situation. It looks forward to the consummation. And then last in your outline, it looks upward with adoration. Upward with adoration. This is the first time in James chapter 1, at the end of chapter 12, that God is mentioned. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, is mentioned in verse 1. And now, at the end of this first section in the book of James, God is mentioned. Jesus Christ at the beginning God at the end of this first section, do you see that James is telling us that this is all about God? And in our circumstances, what we believe, our faith, looks upward with adoration to the one that we love. What we're being told is this, that to know God is to love Him. The more I get to know God, the more I learn of God, the more I know about God and appropriate that knowledge, I believe it, I have faith in it, that He is what He has represented, that He will do what He has said He will do. And as I walk with Him through life 
and go through the ups and downs of life. I learned to, to trust Him and I learned to love Him. To know God is to love God and to love Him ever deeper. And it is the ultimate motivation for why we do what we do. Now let me conclude by asking you, friends, why do you do what you do? Is it because you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your, with all of your strength? The truth is we have all sorts of false motivations for what we do. God says there is one ultimate motivation, and that is to be centered on me and your love for me. And the most tangible way for us to know whether we love God is to look at our circumstances and to ask ourselves what we want to see achieved in those circumstances, whatever they are. Good or bad, hard or difficult, what do we want to see achieved in those circumstances? The answer is supposed to be the honor, the glory, the praise of the God that we love. I ask you in your circumstance, whatever it is, whatever they are, is that what's motivating? If you find yourself complaining, if you find yourself focused on lesser things than your position in Jesus Christ, then you're not loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul. And it's impossible for you to do that if you've not first come to Him in relationship with Him. Now, how does that happen? You recognize that you, like me, have these struggles to bring glory to the God who made us and the Savior who bought us because of something called sin. And so we realize that we all are sinners and we recognize the centrality of Jesus Christ in removing our sin debt by His death on the cross. He died for you. You repent of your sin. Repent is a... Bible term that you hear a lot and may not understand, it simply means this, God, instead of going my way, I want to go your way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. How do you do that? The Bible says, he who calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued, delivered, saved. And so there's no magic formula, but from your heart to God, you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've been going my own way. I have not loved you with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my strength. I see it in my circumstances and the way I react in my circumstances. You've shown me my sin and I see my need for the Savior. I ask you to rescue me. Save me from the penalty of my sin. And I give you my life. I want to follow you. He promises to save you. Dear Christian friend, let's go to the Lord. Let's thank Him for showing us that He's the sovereign God in control of all of our circumstances, good and bad. And let's commit ourselves to using those circumstances to bring honor and glory to Him. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank You again for the opportunity to look into the pages of Your Word and see there the wisdom, the infinite wisdom of Almighty God. We thank You, Lord, that You have penned words because of Your omniscience you know everything you know what we need you've penned words that are as relevant for us today as the day they were first penned we thank you lord that you identify with the circumstances that we endure you know them because you have designed them 
None of them take you by surprise. None of them are outside of your control, whatever they are. And so help us, Lord, to see in the illustration that our brother James has given us of the poor and the well-off. Help us to see that it's not just in money, it's not just in wealth, but rather it's in sickness and in health. It's in work and in disability. It's in tranquility and disharmony in our homes. It's in childlessness and, and children. Lord, in all of these circumstances, you have designed the, them to make us better and to test what we really believe. Do we believe that there is more than this life? Oh, Lord God, help us to live like it then. And I pray for anyone who entered this room who has never come into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore has no chance of seeing anything more than what his eyes can behold. We pray that you will give him or her the eyes of faith so that they now have the ability to believe what you have promised and they're able to see beyond their circumstances to the wonder of being united with Jesus Christ. Help us this week to put these things into practice to bring glory to your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.